So, we've been studying for a few months now, Galatians, and I'll flip over here and we'll pull the outline up and you can just kind of take a look at that before we get started. Who wants to remind us of some of the major themes we've been talking about as we've been studying this letter? False doctrine. False doctrine, that's certainly part of it, and being they were subject to some of those outside influences. Running through most of uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4, which we just got finished studying, has been this idea of the uh, saved by faith or saved by the law. And uh, Paul talks just how we are saved by our faith in Christ. Let me see if I can pull some of these up here. There we go. So there's just an outline of everything we've been talking about so far. And then last week as we really uh, didn't have a whole lot of discussion, but last week as we talked about the end of chapter 4 there from verse 21 to verse 30, that section uh, where Paul gives the illustration of Hagar and Sarah, we talked about how we are essentially, in short, we are not child of the slave, but we are children of the promise. And children of the promise means that we are saved through our faith and our obedience to Christ, or we could say our faith and our faithfulness to Christ. And as he says down there at the end of the chapter, uh, he, he quotes that scripture from Genesis that we looked at, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And so he says we are, we are the children of Abraham, not because we were born of the right bloodline, not because we were uh, somehow worthy or earned this special place with God, but because God chose, uh, essentially chose to offer us a path to salvation with him through our faithfulness, through our obedience, and all that good stuff. But... Uh, I, I, we did kind of have to rush through the end last week, and so I just wanted to take a moment to sort of offer the floor for any questions on chapter 4 uh, before we move on. Because I know we talked about a lot, and uh, if you need to take a minute to sort of skim the end of chapter 4, remember what we talked about, go ahead. But if there's any questions or anything before we move on. In fact, I'll flash up some of our notes from last week. Up there, as we just, like I said, talked about that illustration of the Hagar, who was obviously Abraham's slave woman, and Sarah, his wife, and what it meant to be children of the promise. How we're not, not under legalistic covenant, but under a covenant that's based on faith. So, faith and obedience. Maracas might need to take a break. All right, well, if there's no questions, we will move on, truck on right along here. So someone go ahead and read for us uh, verse, we'll say verse 2 down to verse 6 of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 2 to verse through verse 6. Indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. For you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through the through love. Thank you, sir. So who wants to take a stab at what he's talking about there? Who wants to paraphrase that for us or shout out what might stand out to them from that first little section. Well, again, don't go back to the old law. Don't go back to the old law. It's easy enough. Why does he say that if we do that Christ is of no advantage? What does he mean by that? 
He says that Christ will be of no advantage to you. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we talked about uh, from 221, the same letter, right? He says, if righteousness were possible by the law, then we would not, then Christ died for no purpose. That law was nailed to the cross. Absolutely. And so, uh, yeah, 221, he's just kind of paraphrasing or rephrasing those ideas. And so he says, you know, if you accept circumcision, it will be of no advantage. And uh, he he even goes on to say that, uh, you know, you you are obligated, or I think... uh, the King James says you're under a debt to keep to the whole law. And he's just sort of reminding them that, and you might recall this from those passages we looked at last week in Genesis uh, 16, 12 and 16. When the God made that covenant with Abraham, the, the covenant wasn't actually based on the circumcision. The covenant was based on the obedience, but the circumcision was the sign of the obedience. And so he says you do this to sort of your seal of obedience to, to my law. And so Paul is saying, like, if you do this... Well, this is a sign of keeping the law. Are you going to do this and then keep the whole law? No? Okay, then why are you doing it? It doesn't make any sense. Which is why he goes on to talk more about Christ and the Spirit. But any, any other thoughts or any other observations from those first few verses or questions? Verse 3 is a problem for everybody who runs around and puts the Ten Commandments up on the, <laughs> on the wall. Doing that again. I'm pretty sure you're breathing into it. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, but, you know, if, you, if you're a debtor, if, if you receive a circumcision by logic, you can apply it to any part of the law. You have to keep the whole law. And, you know, people want to cling to the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments weren't for us. And, you know, they, they say that they live by the Ten Commandments. Well, they don't live by Leviticus. Right. So, yeah, there's a... There's probably a lesson that could be unto itself there about how how it is that the Ten Commandments got represented of like everything Christianity means. I'm not really sure when that happened or how that happened, but it, it seems like it has. Um, when then, you know, what does what does Christ sum up all the law and the prophets as? Anyone want to guess? I can tell by the looks on your faces. Some of y'all know. You're just like, I don't want to be wrong, so I'll go ahead and spoil it. You know, lo- love Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And the second is like it, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And so you'd kind of think that if we nailed down one thing as sort of to nail everything onto, it would be the two things that Jesus says to nail everything onto. But I guess, uh, I don't know, they didn't ask me when they made the big tablets in front of the courtyard, the courthouses or whoever. But no, you... Yeah, and much like the rest of the law. Yeah, so you bring up a worthy discussion, and that is, like, so that it's okay to murder and okay to commit adultery and okay to steal? Well, no, but that's because of different reasons, not because they're the Ten Commandments. But uh, that's an excellent point. He brings up, he brings forth some of those, really reinterprets them, but that's a, uh, a much longer study. But, yeah, and just, if, if you like numbers, the rest of the old law has 336 commandments. So I guess they found that 336 were much harder to write on the front of uh, a sign out somewhere than 10. But... And truthfully, the other 326 are a lot less, uh, shall we say, palatable to sub-audiences. So, anyway, 
He says you can't just keep part of the law. It makes no sense to keep part of the law and not try and keep the whole law. So you're either saved by Christ or you're saved by the law. And of course, Paul would say we ought to attempt to be saved by Christ. He even goes on in uh, something else in verse, well, that's not verse 3, that's verse 5. Um, he says, through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope. And I love that verse because on Sundays we've been talking about for a couple weeks now the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit means to us as Christians and what the Holy Spirit looks like in the New Testament, what it looks like in the Bible. And Paul kind of hints at here this idea that the Spirit helps us keep our faith. First uh, Timothy 2 I didn't write it down like I thought I did, but it talks about and guarding the deposit that is entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit. And we looked at many of those verses the other Sunday night, just talking about how it helps us understand God's word, keep God's word, and helps us sort of renew our faith, keep our faith alive. And so he says, we are for, for through the Spirit, by faith, we await the hope of righteousness. I think that's also kind of interesting just to view all of this through through what he calls that hope of righteousness. And not just the hope in this life that things will be good, but really the hope in the next life. That we, we, we don't live to the law, but we live to Christ. Why? Because it's through Christ that we have hope in the next life. That, you know, as we've talked about before in comparing just faith and the law, under the, under the old law there was never any really redemption of sins, any true sense. There was never, never the promise of everlasting life, never the promise of eternal life, never the promise of heavenly unison with God again. But all those are things Christ talks about. All those things Jesus says are possible under his, uh, under his covenant. As we talk about this, I want to point something out. Um, I think we can sometimes be guilty of making the phrase the old law in the Old Testament synonymous. And just because we have an Old Testament and a New Testament, we have, I think sometimes we can be guilty of when we say, well, the old law is useless. Some of us, we can almost have a tendency to be like, so what do I do with the other two-thirds of my Bible? Well, I'll show you something real quick here. Middle of Exodus to the end of Deuteronomy is this. It's about the largest amount of text you could still consider uh, the giving of the old law. It includes a lot of stuff that isn't the law, but that's Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And that is the rest of the Old Testament. So just when we, I think sometimes in our thinking, just by nature of having an Old Testament and a New Testament, we say the old law and the new law. Well, that's tricky language for a lot of reasons. But this is the part that we're talking about. And even half of that, we're still going to say all of it has use. And only about half of that is really actually just straight up giving of the law. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, when we say that we're not, held in the old, un, we're not bound to the old law, don't just you know, rip out the first two-thirds of your Bible. Um, it's still useful, of course. Paul calls it a schoolmaster. He calls it our teacher. He calls it a guardian. All those other things we've talked about in studying the letter. But I just wanted to throw that out as sort of a disclaimer because I think we can... We were told things in the Old Testament that still apply today. Absolutely. While the earth remains, the four seasons will be here. We know that. And yet people will teach. Before the end of the time, they get that. They get that from Genesis 20. Ah, Genesis. Matthew 24, I'll get it right in a minute. And yeah. They get that from there and get to thinking that. Before, right? That's well, not true. That still applies while the earth remains, the four seasons will be here. Yeah, and I think just sometimes we're 22, you know, guilty of stuff. thinking the Bible starts at Matthew. That and, still applies uh, to us. It's all helpful. If a man takes a man's life, he'll pay for it by shedding his own blood. That's still a law for us. Maybe. Um, 
But don't, don't uh, like I said, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of Old Testament, Old Law. I know we can kind of conflate our terms a little bit, but uh, there are plenty of things in the Old Testament that are valuable, worth studying, and still useful to us, which is why it's, it's important to study it. So, well, they were given the law, the law that they got, they were given it because they were getting a little bit rowdy in the wilderness <laughs> and everything. And he yeah. had to put them under a law to keep them straight in line. Well, it's what he says in, uh, back in chapter 4, right? That it's under the guardianship. And the Sabbath day was a holy day. Yeah. For them. So we are no longer under the old law. And he tells us that if we keep circumcision, there's no point in keeping circumcision, not keeping the rest of the law. He also says, I don't know if we read this part yet. Yes, faith working through love. So I found this really interesting as well. Just the phrasing that he says... But only faith working through love. Um, we've talked about how before, how Galatians 3, especially Galatians 4, parts of this, uh, parts of this particular letter are sometimes pulled out of context uh, to talk about just this idea of saved only by our faith. And I think it's, and they'll, they'll present this idea of being saved by faith or works. And I think it's funny that, at least in my translation, the, the phrase, the verse literally reads, uh, but only faith working through love. Oh, you mean to tell me faith can work? Yeah, yeah, I do. This, this idea of having a, an idle faith just doesn't really make a lot of sense uh, to me in light of the context of the Bible and all those things. So, I mean, it even tells us that faith without works is dead. Yes, James is very adamant about the power of works with our faith. Absolutely. Well, there's no other thoughts. We'll keep reading. Uh, someone get, read for us verses 7 through 12. So we'll get to that uh, truthfully almost vulgar ending there in verse 12. But let's talk about the rest of the section for a little bit. Of course, we got verse 7, as we've talked about. That's sort of this uh, idea running through the entire letter about the rebuke of the, you know, what has happened to you, uh, how quickly you're falling away, who is hindering you from obeying the truth. That kind of just fits right in with that line or tone of the whole letter. What does he mean when he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Where are bakers at? What's he mean by that? I mean, I don't know a lot of those. If you put a little bit of leaven in your bread, then you're—it's going to—you're going to notice it. It's going to spread. It's going to spread. Little goes a long way. Little goes. You ever heard that? Uh, you know, a bad apple, a few bad apples can ruin the whole bunch. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of mustard. I just say a little bit of mustard ruins a whole sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a palate dominator. I can put mustard pickles, you know, aioli sauce, and mayo, but the only thing I'm tasting is the mustard. Not a fan. Um, I 
Yeah, there's, there's two different ways, I think, not really different ways, but kind of two kind of meanings to this verse as I was really just studying it in the context of verse 5. And one of them is, yes, that he says, you know, you guys are letting these outside influences shape you. And he said, if you continue to let that happen, it's going to affect all of you. I also think, as we'll see, just the way he talks about both obedience and love in this section, that he's also talking about really their attitudes as well. Um, as I was, like I said, as I was studying this section over and over, verse 5 and 6 seem like kind of interest, kind of almost, uh, almost tangential thoughts at first when you're reading it because he's talking about being free and not keeping the law, and then all of a sudden he's talking about love. And he kind of seems to switch back and forth between these ideas as he goes through this chapter because when he gets to the end, he'll start talking again about uh, using our freedom to love and serve one another. But it seems to me that Paul... Paul, what Paul is trying to really impress upon them is that their, their adherence to these ritualistic or almost legalistic tendencies and these Judaizing influences have hindered their ability to love one another or to serve one another in love or to uh, have their faith work through love. Because again, if, if you're reading it, if, these, if you just pretend these ideas have nothing to do with each other, it doesn't really make sense why he just talks about the law in verse 4 and then in verse 5 and 6 immediately talks about faith and our love. But to Paul, he's clearly telling them that, look, your reliance on just saying I should be saved by circumcision or I should be saved by keeping the law, he said you're, you're actually removing the part of our faith that's supposed to uh, strengthen us, that's supposed to identify with us, and that's really supposed to not necessarily just save us, but that if we, if we rely on the law it's easy to have that mentality of, as we've talked about just this whole letter, that checklist mentality, right? That if I do this, this, and this, then, then I'm saved. And, and that's kind of what the Judaizing influences were, were trying to teach them. But if I am only saved through my faithfulness to God and to what he teaches me, well, then that also affects how I should save other people. Like, if, I, if I'm saved by the law, that doesn't really have anything to do with how I, if I treat other people, right? Like, if I'm saved through circumcision, if I'm saved through... Checking off these boxes on what I didn't do for God, did or did not do for God, that really doesn't totally change my attitude toward other people. But if I'm saved through my faith in Christ and through in what he teaches us to do and how he tells us to live our lives, well, now I actually have to take that faith and it has to, as he says, it has to work through in my love for everyone else. And so he's saying by accepting these teachings, you're also you're not just believing something different, but you're actually letting it change your actions too. You're letting it change how you should treat one another. You're letting it change how you should, uh, how you should behave. Um, it's the same thing we've talked about before just throughout this letter, right? That he says, I want you to have a correct theology. I want you to understand God the right way, but I also want you to be living that out the right way. And so when he, when he says this leaven leavens a whole lump, I think in part, it's yes, it's that idea of the false doctrine and how quickly it can seep in, how quickly it can take hold or sort of affect everybody. But also in the same way, um, attitude, I, I think, can have the same impact. You ever been in a room with one unhappy person, the other nine people are not that happy, <laughs> right? Uh, there's probably a saying that you guys have heard before, if a certain member of your household is not happy, nobody's happy. Apply that to whoever you want. Since anybody in your household do you think it applies to? It's just uh, heard a couple different ways. If, if there's another observation too. If it's, you ran well. He's commending them for doing what they're supposed to do. But he said, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Because there were some who had stopped obeying the truth. And 
and then jump into verse 9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that is an admonition to us to be careful because a little sin in the congregation, a little false teaching, do not underestimate the power of just a little bit of corruption because it can spread. And so these Judaizers, you know, maybe not necessarily a large group, but they were causing a large problem. And so we, we've got to be careful, and that's why we... You know, we can't stand for sin, and, and, and I, you know, I would agree with you on the attitude, too. We've got to make sure that we have proper attitudes, a godly attitude. Yeah. And uh, because, you know, you let some, it's just like you said, if mom ain't, well, you didn't say that. <laughs> I did not say that. Right. I said that can apply to whoever you wanted Boy, it to apply to in your household. But if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, you know, and, and uh, you've got to be, you know. You see the pew in front of you? I didn't uh, say, I didn't say what you said. I said, you see the pew I in front of you? I didn't say happy. I just said if mom ain't happy, my, my mama's happy. You're just describing your household. Uh, no. <laughs> Nobody's going to talk after I'm done to make it fun of you. Absolutely. I, I feel like I uh, was making a joke and you get to make your point. I'm like, I'll come back to what you said in just a second. What no, were you... I, no I, I was pretty much done. I said, okay. we just, we just got to be careful because, yeah. we, you know, we, we're we not confrontational. But there's sometimes, that, you know, and we shouldn't be hateful, but we, mm-hmm. we should definitely be assertive when it comes to standing up for the word and what the word says. And we, you know, we cannot allow... We cannot allow false teaching. We cannot allow sin. We can't turn a blind eye to it because when we turn a blind eye to it, the world judges a tree by its fruit. And if we do not handle situations like that, and we, we do it lovingly because I, I think that's the rest of the lesson is, you know, yeah. it is, is you know we, we have to do it lovingly. And we should, you know, if somebody is in sin, we should want them to come back to the fold. And we need to, to have a hand extended out trying to help them back. But if they do not, comply with God's word, then, then we, have to, we have to handle that because we cannot be in a position to where we say one thing and allow something else. Yeah, and I was, uh, in both of those ways, because I mean, a lot of times, um, boy, I, could, we, I read this somewhere and it was put really, really wisely and I'm going to butcher it, so just bear with me. Um, the sin you defend is the sin you're in. I think that's what it was. I think that's how I read, I read that the other day. And I'm not saying that's true for everybody, but it talked about how it said a lot of times when we find ourselves defending a particular point of view really, really hard and saying, no, 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 I think this is fine. Because um, I think it was talking about a, a specific sort of uh, set of sexual morality, but it just talked about how a lot of times when people really, really, really say, look, well, I think it's okay. They said the sin you defend is often the sin you're in. And in the same way that if I know I'm struggling with something, of course I'm like, ah, oh, this really isn't as bad as other sins. This isn't really as bad as these other things over here. Um, and so that's why I was saying I think it is both both the correct doctrines you mentioned and the, the correct attitude or being concerned, as the Bible also talks extensively about, uh, the reputation of Christians. Um, Peter, who says, you know, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they can, you know, through your work, see God. Um, this is why I want to let Van finish because I was building off what you said. 
I was in a restaurant business for all, almost 10 years, I guess, 1626. Um, and they had a rule that, you know, for every negative interaction, it took like eight positive, it, it took eight positive customer interactions uh, to make up for one negative one. Because let me tell you, the moment that they could send out surveys, they beat us over the head with customer experience surveys. Just like they do you guys. If you go anywhere and say, like, hey, tell us how we did. Well, they turn around, they beat their own employees over the head with them too. Um, but the idea was they said, man, if we are 80% great, if 80% of our customers leave loving life and they're really happy, those two have way more of an impact than those eight. And that's just the reality of it. And the same thing is kind of true with us as Christians, that whether it's uh, dealing internally with sin, as you mentioned, or it's dealing externally with a matter of attitude and reputation, I mean, we're, and, I mean this goes a millionfold for small towns, right? You guys know. It doesn't... <coughs> You ain't got to upset too many people before you get, a, you get labeled pretty quickly, right? And so a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He said you got to be careful. And to your point, Van, he, in terms of handing it lovingly, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. That's pretty soft language for Paul if we compare it to maybe some of his other letters where he writes about, say, purging the wicked from among you. So in this situation, he's saying, look, I have confidence that you will, you will have no other view, that you'll accept my teaching, that you'll understand where I'm coming from. And he even says, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, which in contrast, I would say, 1 Corinthians, he's not necessarily saying, you know, go beat them with socks at, the, at night, whoever this is that's troubling you. But he's saying, look, these, these people who are causing problems in you, their time will come due is really the attitude he seems to be saying this with here. He says, those, those people who are trying to pull you guys away, who are trying to cause you problems, those people, their time will come. They, they will pay for what they are doing. And so that's why he says, you know, even whoever he is, not really naming anybody there. We always have to remember, we get in discussion with people like that, and they get upset. Are you trying to show me up? No, you're not trying to show them up. Mm -hmm. You're trying to keep them from being lost. Absolutely. Well, in uh, we can't sit still and not answer questions when they're wrong. And yeah. Right, point it out that they're wrong. Man, I've. That's why I say I don't know all the time. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, yeah. Yeah. I've seen many. Unfortunately, many teachers in the church put their foot in their mouth or get in hot water with somebody because what they, they tried to take a stance on something that they were kind of getting on thin ice about or out of their depth out, when they probably should have just said, I don't know. Um, and that's why I think it was, was it the last Sunday night or something. I try to be real clear when I'm telling you something either I'm not sure about or I just say, hey, this is just my opinion. This is an authoritative reading on this text. This is just my personal commentary that nobody asked for. This is just my thoughts on it, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. Follow. Yeah, if you're going to tell them that, you got to follow up. Absolutely. Sometimes we express doctrine so much because it is important. We impact the others so long as it's the doctrine and the work along with it, how it works with it makes a difference. Absolutely. And we'll, uh, I wanted to get to the end of this little section, and we're going to come back to that point because Paul does in his letter here. Um, Verse 13 and, or I'm sorry, verse 11 and 12. He says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Um, this is really just a figure of speech that he's saying, um, 
the Judaizing influences we've talked about. Paul comes here, he establishes the church, he leaves, the influences come in, he comes back, hears from them, he's like, what's going on? I left you guys in great shape. Um, this verse would seem to imply that those influencers not only came in and tried to teach them something different, but even tried to come in and say, no, 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 Paul's changed his mind on this. Paul is changing his teaching on this. Paul is actually was not fully informed when he came to you. And, you know, Paul needed to be corrected, which is why, if you remember when we were studying Galatians 2, Paul goes to great lengths to talk about how he received the gospel, what, not from men, but from Jesus Christ himself. And he didn't have to consult the apostles on that. He, he is speaking of the authority of God. And that's why he goes to those links in Galatians 2. And so he's just referencing here, he's sort of countering these deceitful claims that are being made about him, about those influencers who would say, well, Paul, Paul just didn't know about circumcision yet. He had to be taught. He just didn't, wasn't teaching you the full gospel. Paul is saying, whoa, 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 if I'm still preaching that, as they are alleging, then why am I being persecuted as a Christian? <laughs> he said, if, if I was a Jew, would I not be in with the Jewish people? But no, I'm being persecuted, and so you know uh, you know I'm still teaching what I've always taught, the gospel I've always brought to you, as he calls it in Galatians 1. And then he says, I wish those who unsettled you would cut themselves off. Uh, a bit of a play on words in the sense of both spiritually and probably physically, considering the topic we're talking about. Um, he's saying, you know, if, if you're going to teach this, I'd do this to yourselves. If you're just going to keep up with that, go, go all the way, I guess, is really what he's saying. Just both cut themselves off physically and spiritually from their fellowship and sort of have nothing to do with them, cast, be cast off. Um, let's read this last section here, and we'll talk about it, and then I'll get through some more. Uh, this should have some of these notes we've been talking about here. Um, but someone go ahead and read for us verse 13 through 15, and we'll wrap up this little section here. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh through love serve one another for all the laws fulfilled in one word even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one another beware lest you be consumed by one another before i keep going thoughts thoughts comments questions on those last few verses there he really doesn't say anything that we haven't already kind of been talking about just as we've been discussing the other verses but he does make it a point here to say you were called to freedom not to use your opportunity as a freedom in the flesh. I think there is sometimes this tendency, and I believe it was Sunday morning we were talking about the same issue in our Bible class. There, there's a tendency sometimes doctrinally, I think, for us to overcorrect. That when we see a problem over here, the pendulum swings a little bit too far this way and we come this way. And then when we get over here, we say, no, 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 we got to go all the way over here to avoid this problem over here. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to give in to these, these legalistic influences of people who are binding where, the, where Christ did not bind. He says, but you have freedom in Christ. Don't, don't go all the way over here. Don't just be doing whatever you want. <laughs> just because I'm telling you not to follow the law doesn't mean you can just be lawless. So he says, you've been called to liberty or you've been called to freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge yourselves and uh, fall into all these different kind of fleshly temptations, which... If we know anything about the, the Gentile church in this, in this part of the world and the, the Greek culture, there was certainly plenty of opportunity for them to do that. They had the Judaizing influencers who were trying to keep the law, but if we look at the Greek and the Roman culture they were surrounded, boy, there was plenty of temptation to, to, to give in to those kind of uh, fleshly sins, as Paul kind of calls them, as well. And so he says, look, just because I'm telling you not to be uh, binding where the gospel does not bind, 
and not to be falling to these legalistic influences. Don't come all the way over here on the other end of the spectrum either. Don't think, don't think by teaching you freedom in Christ, I mean, you can be free to do whatever you want. There was a, a really good commentary I read on this that, that said uh, there's three kinds of liberty, three kinds of ways this word was used in Paul's time, and it talked about uh, civil liberty, moral liberty, and... He says, not the kind, and Paul is not talking about this, but he is talking about a spiritual liberty. And he says, that is the freedom that we have from being fearful of the wrath of God. And I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it, because I've, I've never, I don't, we talk about salvation in a lot of different ways, but he just talked about how we are free from the wrath of God when we are in Christ. And that sort of freedom should affect us. That sort of freedom should empower us. It should make us think about it differently. Which is why he talks about freedom and love. So, but, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Notice how even though, even though Paul did not have a one-on-one uh, during his lifetime knowledge of Jesus. If you remember, in Gal- and specifically in this letter, at the end of chapter 1, kind of the beginning of chapter 2, he talks a lot about his, how he got the gospel from Christ. How he had this revelation from Christ. And it... it that's, that is the message that he's bringing. Notice how close his wording is to the words of Jesus. I mean, even though there was no gospel of Matthew or gospel of Luke circulating around at the time, this is very nearly the exact phrase that Jesus himself uses when he says, uh, you know, the law and the prophets rest on all of these. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's interesting that Paul, Paul it is evidence of his revelation from Christ that in spite of not having the written gospel, as we do, Paul says something that's like word-for-word word accounted for in our written gospel. I just thought that was interesting when you talk about uh, maybe cross-references between the New Testament. Other thoughts from uh, verses 13 through 15. It gives an admonition on how we should behave with one another. Um, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So here you had these Judaizers uh, who are part of the Gentile church, but they're trying to go back to the law, and you've got people who are trying to do the right thing, and you know, and, and this is even—I mean, I don't think anybody in here is trying to go back to the law, but you know, I mean, you've got to be careful not to have division, you know, because you look at you look at the history of the church, and you look how small things have caused large splits, and, and yeah. you know, and you know, I I make the argument the devil's not working to get the guy to bar. That guy gave himself freely, but he's working to get everybody in here and, and meeting houses like this. And we've got to be careful not to give him a way in by, you know, failing to love one another. You know, and if you look over at verse uh, 2 of chapter 6, you know, we've got to bear each other's burdens. Uh, we've got to love each other. And, you know, that, <coughs> again... I don't think family is a metaphor. I think, you know, we are blood kin by the blood of Christ, and, and we've got to take care of one another. And when disagreements arise, we, we put God's word first, we put, and we put love second, and we apply the word through love. Uh, because, uh, what, what, what did it say a while ago? Spirit equally wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. And that's not talking about belief, that's talking about the religious system. That's talking about what Christ come and earth and established in the new law. Um, and so we, we've got to be loving and we've got to lovingly do what God has told us to do and we've got to be careful that we don't allow a lack of love to 
allow Satan's wedge in between members of the church. Absolutely. Um, that's really where I was going with this, was that just some extra thoughts on verse 15 there. Because to kind of go with uh, Luis, what you were, you were sort of mentioning earlier, I think there is somewhat of a, a contrast, or maybe you could say guideposts, between verse 9 and 15 of this chapter. And we'll pick back up with this. Uh, is that the second bell or first bell? Okay, good. Sometimes I hear bells in my head, so I just wasn't sure. Um, that, that wasn't real. That was a joke. Yeah. That was a <laughs> is, that Mama, is that shortly after Mama ain't happy? <laughs> yeah. Hearing the bells. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there can be somewhat of a guideline or just a comparison between. Notice at uh, chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. I, I threw this up on the screen. But chapter 2, 11 through verse 10, Paul describes his confrontation with Peter. And we studied this many, many weeks ago. But Paul models that he says, hey, there is a time to. To stand up, confront somebody, and tell them when they stand condemned, as he did with Peter. But he also says in verse 15 of chapter 5, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed. And I think there's a strong principle there of just knowing, knowing the issues that are worth fighting about. Really seems to be what Paul is saying here. That he says, yes, a lead eleven lump is a whole lump. I have confidence that you will handle it correctly. You know, uh, love one another, serve one another, through love serve one another. Let your faith work through love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch that you are not consumed. I don't think that any of us are above criticism or above making complaints or having complaints. But he says, be careful when you bite that you do not consume one another. Chapter 2 is a perfectly good example of Paul modeling. He says, hey, there are doctrinal issues where we need to confront one another. We need to stand up and not agree to disagree, but say, hey, this is not right. I mean, he even take, no matter who their status is, right? Paul didn't care who Peter was in the church. Paul said, yeah, I know Peter. Peter's a great guy, but you know what? He was wrong. <laughs> he says, but at the same time, if we bide at one another, be careful that we do not consume, that we are not consumed. Um, as you kind of mentioned, Van, I think if we look at the different things that have divided churches, our church, tr Christian traditions, I mean, using that word as many different ways as we want to, I've commented before that I rarely, rarely, rarely have seen, at least in my firsthand experience, a church split over doctrinal issues. They're almost always over issues of opinion. Some people want a pew, some people want a chairs. These people wanted to paint the curtains red. These people wanted the curtains blue. And next thing you know, they can't get along. They can't sit at the table with one another. We can't go to this restaurant in town at lunch. We're going to that one because so-and-so goes to this one. And people start taking sides, and suddenly there's this big fractious issue. And so he says, if you, if you bite at one another, be careful that you are not consumed. Don't point fingers. Preach the gospel and let the gospel point the fingers. Yeah. That'll keep, it, that'll keep that problem out of out. Absolutely. But he seems just to be modeling this idea. Right, right. He can also pull it back. <laughs> so just one more, I guess, point of application I want to make from this in the few sort of seconds we have left is in all of this, as we sort of wind closer and closer to the close of the letter, because uh, we'll talk about fruit of the spirit next week and just this con contrast between the spirit and the flesh. 
But a big, big point of this letter is there's no compromise between Christianity and Judaism. And that's really how he starts this section, that it runs throughout the letter. And if I brought that into the modern sense, I would say there can be no compromise between Christianity and any other value or belief system we have. And even though we might, not, we might not personally teach Christianity and Judaism, as Van kind of mentioned, there's not many of us who are clamoring for us to be obedient to Moses' law. I do think that we can sometimes be guilty of saying, you know, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be part of the church, you have to be a Christian and blank. And you can fill in that blank however you want. Any philosophical, religious, influential, political system, you want to throw it in there. But I think sometimes we are equally guilty of saying, well, to be a part of our fellowship, you have to be a Christian and a blank. And Paul was very clear in this, in this letter that he says, no, 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 no. You, you don't need Christianity and anything else. You need the gospel. And so we'll pause there. We'll pick back up on that next week. Thank you, guys.